This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. I understand we had a couple of days of work here. Um, thank you for those who have been working on Jikoji. And um, imagine there's a few newcomers here too, and welcome, welcome. Uh, if this is your first time. So uh, my name is Andy, and I am a resident here. And um, I recently got back from a practice period at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center, which is in Carmel Valley. Well, it's between like Carmel Valley and uh, Big Sur in the mountains. It's kind of like a 14-mile dirt road into the mountains where you feel like you are traveling to a very distant land. <laughs> if anyone has been on that road before. <laughs> and on the way back, there were even snow-capped mountains um, kind of coming in while, while there was snow on them and mist, and it just felt like we were leaving one dimension of practice that we'd been in for three months and coming back into another world, which is not separate, but just a, a different, different world than being in a little Zen village for three months. So what, I just want to say a few words about that. Um, and it was an opportunity to share, and I was encouraged from, by, a, by Cliff um, Eisberg, who's a priest here, who's not here today, um, to, um, to share some of my experience. And so when I was asked, what am I going to give the talk on today? I was like, well, I'll, I'll talk about Tassajara and what, you know, what the practice period was. And, and also, uh, the person who led it is a, um, is a very wonderful teacher named Norman Fisher. And um, he's uh, from San Francisco Zen Center and had, had lived at Tassajara and Green Gulch and, I believe, City Center. And he's just been in, in that world for a very long time. And he's also a poet and a wonderful author. And his wife, Kathy, was there, too. And they kind of co-led a lot of aspects of the, of the practice period, which... I hadn't seen before and really, really enjoyed the complementarity of that and having two amazing teachers there. And um, so it felt like a very good opportunity. I received a lot of support from this community, um, the Jacoji community, to go and a lot of encouragement, especially my teacher, Mike Newhall, had been encouraging me for years. I'd thought of doing something like this for a long time. And it just seemed like this, uh, the more I kept hearing about what it's like to do a practice period there, I was um, a little concerned about whether I would make it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a place where it gets cold, especially in the wintertime. Um, sometimes it got down to 25 degrees uh, Fahrenheit and uh, at night. And um, some of the cabins there are not heated. And the one I had was not heated. So I brought winter capping gear bought some base layers and hot water bottles and uh, um, at uh, one of the residents here's uh, um, recommendation a down comforter <laughs> and I felt like I was over prepared like that kind of neurotic sort of like uh, I don't know if anybody had seen that seen that episode of Portlandia where they're like oh we're gonna go out hiking today it's like we gotta get some gear and it's like they, they're going to REI or wherever they're going we gotta get the gear we gotta get the gear by the time they have all the gear and they're ready to leave on their on their bicycles for this local hike they're just so geared up and it's ridiculous and and uh and it's too late because like the sun is setting so <laughs> I felt like that walking in I had this monstrous duffel loading into San Francisco Zen Center uh for the shuttle the next day and I, I bring the first duffel in, and this guy is standing right there, and he kind of works there, and he works the front desk. And I'm like, how do you know you, you geared up too much for Tassajara? <laughs> and he just goes, I don't think you can. If that's all you brought, you're minimalist compared to me. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I regretted none of the gear that I bought, especially the, the gear involved in keeping warm. Um, if you're over 50 years old, you get a heated cabin, and then certain staff and things have heated cabins there. But they have a finite amount of resources, and they're off the grid. Um, so they have solar panels on a hillside. So it's a, uh, it's a place of, I feel it relates to um, kind of a, uh, what the whole experience of that practice period relates to what we go through on the cushion. 
all the time and what we work with when we sit down. And I can speak for myself mostly, it's like it's what I work with oftentimes. And it's like an encapsulation, it's maybe a little bit more of a, there's a macrocosm and microcosm and the microcosm of our practice is sitting for one period, however that long is. That is, um, it doesn't matter the length, if it's five minutes or if it's 40 minutes or if it's an hour, you know, you sit down wholeheartedly and you encounter yourself and there's nothing else to encounter really, I think. Um, that's my experience on the cushion. And this was the same way. Yeah, it's uh, very, very elaborately set up in a way for, for the, monastic, the Zen monastic forms to be there fully. We get a little taste of them here. And, um, and we take it on during Sashin for like we have our week-long retreats here. But when it's three months and it's uh, 65 people, which is what we had, there's a lot of forms to really make sure that, that is, uh, that's, take, that's well taken care of and we have the opportunity to do that every day uh, for that number of days, for like 90 days. As far as I understand, the practice periods, the ango, as we say too, the Japanese word, um, uh, originated with the Buddha, um, and he would often take his uh, students, his monks, uh, on retreat during the rainy season or the monsoon season in India. And according to Dogen, in his fascicle called Ango, which Norman opened up with, um, or his first talk at the practice period, was that uh, there's a certain point where the Buddha didn't feel like and people were quite listening to his teachings, so he decided to go into retreat for 90 days for a given period, and that was the first practice period, which really strikes me the more I think about it, and it's amazing um, what I didn't think about too much at practice period, but afterwards in my integration time of coming back, it's like, uh, kind of like, I liken it to uh, going on a backpacking trip, or has anybody ever done like a deep country backpacking trip and then re-emerged in civilization? <laughs> <laughs> or heck, you just go to a movie and you reemerge in the civilization. <laughs> There's kinds of liminal spaces, you know, um, as a term, where we kind of give up um, our usual orientation to life for a given time, and then we um, come back. And you know, movie theaters are dark places, and we're receiving a story, or and we almost forget ourselves and just watch the movie, right? And doing something like this is a little bit like that as well, and sometimes our practice can feel that way. So that struck me that um, listening uh, seemed to be a theme for the Buddha, uh, the first practice period. And uh, one of the very many lists, most, a lot of people in this room know that there are a lot of lists in Buddhism. <laughs> and uh, I think... Um, was it a couple weeks ago? Uh, who did we have from Minnesota Zen Center? What was his name? It was, uh, ben Connolly. Thank you, Ben Connolly. It's like I've known Ben, but <laughs> just had to. It's like forgetting your phone number sometimes. Ben Connolly, he said, uh, Yeah, there's all these lists. <laughs> and he commented on it. But um, one of the lists is uh, the three prajnas, which is hearing, contemplating, and meditating. And um, I think that. The idea is we hear, we listen, we take the time to contemplate, we mingle it with our life, and we meditate and uh, kind of let go of any kind of preconceived notion or idea. And the fact that listening was a theme in the first ongo strikes me. Uh, and so then one asks, and I ask, am I really listening? Am I really listening to teachings? And what is listening? And what is listening in our practice? As it turns out, um, when you enter Tassajara as a monastery, you, um, you, and it's your first time there, you sit for five days um, straight in a practice called Tangario, which translates to waiting at the gates. And uh, it kind of comes from the tradition of uh, people being ignored when they first got to monasteries and waiting outside to prove that they are serious. Has anybody seen Fight Club? There's something like that there too. And I think that you know Chuck Palahniuk probably was uh, um, inspired by 
Zen practice in some way, one way or another. I don't know if he's a practitioner or not, but there's something consistent there. It's like that. Do you have the grit? Do you have the determination? Do you have the will to to be here? Prove yourself. <laughs> so there's a little bit of that. But um, the wonderful thing is, is that are we listening and are we prepared to be in an environment such as that, which is really engineered for us to um, engage our practice and engage it fully. So for five days, we're all we had to do was sit, and we were very well supported in that environment. We were fed. We were given very minimal instructions on what to do. And some of those instructions were, you were to wear robes at all times outside of your room. And I started to realize, okay, this sort of casual thing of like, can I just pull off the rock suit today? <laughs> As a priest, I've got more cloth and things to work with. Everyone did. Lay practitioner or ordained practitioner did not matter. Everyone had a koromo, this outer robe, and some of the under robes too. Everyone had those. So we all were kind of wearing the same thing. And um, so we're told that, you know, like if you're outside of your room, that's what you wear. Um, basically, uh, do not make eye contact with people. Do not speak to anyone. This is just your practice. It's like the whole idea is eternal light within, and just that's all we're doing. And this, is, this resembles what we do in Sashin. So it's like, all right, so it's like a five-day Sashin. Cool, I'm done with that. Except that the only breaks we had were a half hour after each meal. And, it is, and we received orioki and we received um, like a cookie and some tea at tea in the afternoon. And... Um, what was very interesting about that was that the forms being so precise, I started to get an idea of the fact that it puts you in impossible situations. Because I'm like, well, I have to go to the bathroom, and I have to go to the bathroom at this time, and it's not a convenient time, and here's a schedule, and I have to be there, and I can't do this to take care of myself without breaking the schedule. And so you feel compromised, and then what do you do? Does anybody want to hear a story? I wrote my journal, and this is uh, someone gave me this uh, this nice journal to write in while I was there. It's day two. I woke, went out to get water and brush my teeth, leaving the gatehouse. We woke at about 4 a.m. every day. When I returned, the first roll down on the Han was underway, but my room was locked. Uh-oh, how interesting. Who do I talk to? We're not supposed to talk to anybody. No time. Zendo now. So I went in, I sat, chanted, and ate orioki through the entire morning session with my pajamas on under my karomo. No okesa. I whispered my dilemma to the head doan on the way in discreetly. She's pretty helpful and available. Oh my, she said. After breakfast, my door was still locked, so I wandered over to the shop for the first time and found a 45-year-old-ish old guy with a gray beard working on a chainsaw, putting it away. I'm in Tongario and shouldn't be speaking, but I'm locked out of my room. I'm in the gatehouse. He walked with me and tried each of the ways I'd done to break in. Finally, he took out a pocket tool and picked the lock. He was kind. I wouldn't recommend locking any door at Tassahara, he said. <laughs> the sense I gathered was that they don't have a lot of keys rather than me being admonished. He seemed generally exasperated and amused. Finally, able to change into more fitting Zendo attire, I was checked in by the shop manager, checked in on by the shop manager and the head doan. Very kind of them. I did the entire session with my PJs underneath my Karomo, I told the shop manager. Awesome, he enthused. <laughs> Since I've been in silence, the brief interaction was unusually vibrant. Exchanges with people, I've realized, are magical when we're present and full of ener um, energetic interactivity. This becomes more obvious during our practice of sitting. I hadn't noticed much of a shift before then, so it was like standing up after sipping on an adult beverage and finding out that you're drunk. <laughs> so um, 
what kind of gradually started to occur then during those first five days and then as we were going through the ongo is that these forms that we were taking up that were actually very precise and at times felt very restrictive. Um, you know, my own mind kind of combats these things and I tend not, it, it took me a very long time to warm up to some of the Zen forms. I didn't like any of them when I first started. I just wanted to sit and study the Dharma. Thank you very much. But um, gradually I just started to see that these very precise forms allowed us to interact in certain ways. That suddenly looking someone in the eye was a miracle. I hadn't done it for a little while. You take something away for a little while and you come back to it and suddenly it's profound, or it can be. And um, I started to appreciate that. And then um, even so, though, the longer we went through the practice period, I was doing things like on a break, making a Venn diagram of the commonalities between monastic forms, sports teams, and prisons, and what they have in common. <laughs> Because it felt kind of like a combination of all of those. Oh yeah, and then there was Catholic school, which I, <laughs> which I experienced as a child. And what they all had in common in the middle was uniforms. <laughs> and otherwise, there was a, somewhat of an, uh, an authoritarian structure too, um, where there was somebody kind of calling the shots or some kind of hierarchy involved. Oh yeah, it was military as well. <laughs> Did I say military? <laughs> Uniforms are in the center. All of them have uniforms. So here I am with all this critical sort of thought about it and thinking of things like, God, is this even necessary? Does it matter what I wear? Does it really, if you sit down fully, does it matter what you wear? Really, truly. And, and I was asked to shave my head, and I'm like, does it matter if my head is shaved or not? Essentially, really. So I shaved my head. I think I figured I would do it um, if I was asked to do it. So I went in with a full head of hair, and so I did it. And what's interesting is, on some level, maybe it doesn't matter, and on some level, it does. I think that I'm conditioned to all kinds of things, and this is a way to kind of give up some of that conditioning. I tend to prefer a certain kind of clothes that express how I feel that day. I feel like blue shirt today. And that's the way I think. Some people don't. I do. I want these pants. Yeah, I feel like that's going to match the day. Um, well, I'm putting on these robes, the same robes I've been wearing every day for the last month or so instead. And uh, what started to occur was that, well, it, it doesn't matter, and it does matter. One of the things that we needed to do was serve Oriyoki, and um, I know a lot of people have, have done Oriyoki here, but Imagine there's a few people who don't know what Oriyoki is, too. It's a, it's a way of eating. We have uh, like a, some bowls packaged up and wrapped up nicely. and It's a way of eating in the zendo where you're, you're served the food and, um, and you, don't have to kind of, you, just kind of, you don't have to break the zazen or the meditation practice. You just kind of, you're just uh, there with it and you're there with the food and there's like three bowls you eat out of and there's a way to kind of do everything, including cleaning your chopsticks at the end and putting everything back. And it's also very efficient because uh, hot water gets passed after that and you're drinking the water that was kind of washing out the bowls too. So um, you have all these people who are eating and you don't have a lot of dishes afterwards that you would normally have for that number of people. So it's a, um, it's a, it's a form that we observe here too and it's adapted in many places, in many Zen centers. So. Uh, those who could serve Oriyoki, we did serve Oriyoki. And right away, I started to notice, I had served Oriyoki in a Zendo before. We used to do that here, but we kind of adapted it to tabletop forms. And um, what I started to notice right away is that self really emerges with some of these forms, especially when I'm serving Oriyoki and I feel self-conscious because I'm taking a ladle of food out and I have to serve it in someone's bowl without getting it messy but with also honoring what they want. We have these little hand signals like, oh, just a little bit more, or thank you, that's enough. And if someone says just a little bit or asks for a little ceremonial amount, I have to do it in a way that doesn't create a scene. And, it's, and it was mortifying. And uh, people have preferences. And at some point, one person was sitting there, and they didn't like how I did something, and they just said, no. <laughs> I was like, 
no. What do you mean, no? I'm trying hard here, you know? <laughs> and that was happening. And what I noticed was really funny is that um, once I shaved my head, there was less self-consciousness while I was serving Oriyoki. And I just noticed that. I didn't know why necessarily. I didn't have too much of a story about it. I just saw that there was less self-consciousness. And I just entered into it and kind of lost and just went right into the spirit of service rather than being caught up in how it's affecting me. Because food is very intimate, I kept finding. And that's one of the things that I found too, especially eating Oriyoki. It's a very intimate experience where these, you know, what we're eating is joining with our bodies, literally, and we're taking it inside of our bodies. And so it's intimate for other people and to have compassion for that, have respect for that, and to um, be with this act of eating together as a practice started to light up a bit. And uh, what I noticed is that it's because of the forms that we were doing that allowed us to have these interactions that we could then reflect on. And we don't necessarily talk about all these things with each other because we're also in silence a lot of the time, not all the time. Sometimes I'd follow up with somebody and say, hey, you know, I really tried to give you the right amount today. And how was that? And, and they're just like, oh, yeah, it was fine. You know, no worries. And it's like we had that little misunderstanding. And it's all good. You know, and I'm like, Whew, good. <laughs> and then other times it's like that was the experience. And that's just what it is. So one of the things that I, ex that I really respect about Norman um, was that he, he was on to this and he mentioned this in one of his um, lectures. He said that these, are, uh, these forms are kind of meant, these monastic forms especially in, in the Zen tradition, are meant to be kind of restrictive. And he said, are they, are they medieval? And he's like, yeah, they're kind of medieval. It's like, uh, you know, are they, are they restrictive? Yeah. You know, um, are they kind of conservative sometimes? Yeah, yeah, they're that too. You know, he said, but they allow us to relate to each other in a way that we don't always have an opportunity to relate to each other. And one of the ways that that works is contrast. We see the contrast between situations. And one of the things that Mike said in his talk when I first got here, uh, got back here, was um, Mike Newhall. He's a guiding teacher here. And he said, um, he said something, he said, uh, non-substantiality is substantiality, and substantiality is non-substantiality. And it reminded me of the Heart Sutra, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. And he started talking about, and I've heard him say this a number of times, as an artist, he's looking at negative space, positive and negative space, and he's saying, the space between two trees, or it's holding, they're holding each other in that space between. And I've been really thinking about that in a way it was the perfect talk. It was like um, a couple days after I got back from the practice period and Mike is giving this talk. And I'm like, well, that really feels like the precise forms that we had during the practice period that felt restrictive and were maddening at times and very frustrating and other times you just do it, and it's not about who's right and who's wrong. If there's like a if there's a disagreement about it, the form is right, and you just relax. And sometimes a space opens up, and the opportunity is that our Buddha nature is there. And so it's like the space between two trees holding each other, and it feels very intimate, and it's and it's unexpected too is the thing it, it, it doesn't it doesn't um, abide by the um, our preconceptions or our conditioning it's a way of relating to each other that is uh, perhaps beyond our conditioning beyond our presuppositions and maybe it allows something like beginner's mind as Suzuki Roshi said to relate to it in a fresh way and that's, that was my sense. And um, I'm just finding my notes from Norman.
it's funny because I thought that I needed to rely on my notes from that talk, and I've pretty much mentioned what was in my notes. <laughs> but one of the things that I love that he said, um, uh, and this is why I wanted to talk about faith when I was asked what I want to talk about in this talk too, is that I wanted to share my experience a bit and then also talk about um, the notion of faith um, in, in this practice and for me and what that's meant. And, what I liked about this is that um, when Norman was talking about these forms, he, uh, he was critical of it. He was like, yeah, medievalish, 14th century, maybe, you know, but they're also wise, he said. They produce a possibility for people to express themselves in ways otherwise not possible. I found that interesting. He also quoted the poet Philip Whalen in either in that talk or another talk, and he said Philip Whalen was a beat poet. He was part of the San Francisco kind of um, poetry scene, you know, with Jack Kerouac and um, Allen Ginsberg and all those guys. And uh, he also spent a good time at Tassajara, and as a Zen practitioner, he was an ordained Zen priest too, and a teacher. And he said, um, monasticism is a strange mixture of high-minded idealism, paltry intrigue, and contagious delusional systems. And I Jero, did I write that to my note to you? Jero sent me a card and I wrote something back. I think I wrote that to you. <laughs> And he goes, I want you to memorize this. <laughs> so I wrote it down. And I repeated it back to him in Dokusan a couple of days later. And he just goes, contagious. Don't forget contagious. <laughs> They're contagious delusional systems. And I like that because in, in, the same, in one of his talks, he just said, um, he said, the sacred narratives of Buddhism are narratives, a story. They're important to know and embrace but it's not the only story in your life. And he was kind of making the case to take care of the rest of your life too. It's not like you find Buddhism, you just dive in and that's it. That's all that matters. You have your whole life. If you see it separate from your whole life, you, you need to engage that. And that's what I took away from that. And then he talked about fundamentalism as taking the narrative to be absolutely true and exclusive. So I like that. So, you know, we, we need to, you know, recognize that there are problems if we take the, 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 um, the narrative to be absolutely true and, and that's it and other people are wrong or you know, it needs to look like this and only like this or only the Zen forms are correct and it's an approach. It's not the only approach. It's an approach and it's not the approach for everyone. And one thing I like about what Kokio Henkel said here, he's a teacher at Santa Cruz Zen Center. He comes up here once a year for a Genzoe Sashin, which is coming up in a couple weeks. He said, uh, you know, the Zen forms, it's almost, like, uh, it's almost like perfecting an art form or something. You know, you just, you do it and you observe it and it's a practice. And for some people, they really resonate with that. And with other people, they resonate with another aspect of Buddhist practice. And it, it doesn't make that wrong. We all need different things at different times. So I love that Norman said that, that he acknowledged that there's something to what we're doing and that it's not the only way. But when we're there, you know, we were encouraged to take it on as a practice wholeheartedly. And so some of my thoughts about that, um, he, I noticed that Norman was talking about, um, I'll go for a couple more, a few more minutes and then we can have some discussion, that um, he would use words like faith and uh, I was really kind of surprised at that. It's like some of the, I thought it was part of the religious language that I tried to get away from since I was raised as a Catholic. And even though I think it's a wonderful tradition in many ways, I just discovered at some point that it wasn't for me. And I'm like, why? Why are you using words like faith? <laughs> and then when I came back, I, well, one of the things is, is that I realized that one of the books that were recommended to get for the practice period, there are several books they gave us a reading list, you know, before. And one of the texts was called The Awakening of Faith. It's a Mahayana text. It's attributed to uh, uh, an Indian teacher named Avagosha. 
and the only version of it that we have right now is uh, the Chinese translation that was translated from India to China in about the sixth century or something. So that's, that's all we have at this point. And it's been, it's like a core text that's translated almost every Mahayana Buddhist tradition. So the awakening of faith, you know, so faith was central from, from many people's perspectives. So I started to see this in many different teachers too, not just Norman. But um, also in some of Norman's teachings, he, he, he's also, he, he doesn't see it as far from criticism. And uh, you, you can actually be awake in a, in a, in with all of your critical faculties of your mind and actually still, you know, that can be an expression of faith, which I think is very interesting. So for me, making that Venn diagram, thinking critically about where I was and going, God, you know, why do we have all this? And, you know, you know the military, the prisons, and it's like, why is this all so similar? You know, that was part of me. That was, part, that was an expression of faith. I cared enough about what I was doing. I realize now that I was thinking critically about it. And I was allowing myself to just be generous with that. And... Um, and there's something that I found in my kind of preparation for this talk, and I feel like I could give a whole separate talk on this, so I'll just touch on it. Uh, Trunk Parimpache, in one of, my, one of my books of his, says, um, you can have faith in not having faith. So this conventional notion of faith that we have, and our conventional notion of faith that I think is reflected in our dictionaries a lot, you know, is... Complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Strong belief in God or in the doctrines of religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. A system of religious belief. A strongly held belief or theory. And also dogma was mentioned in there too. Which, one of the things about Zen that I've always appreciated in Buddhism um, is that it's, it, can be, it can very much be expressed as a non-dogmatic tradition that does not rely on belief or a conventional notion of faith. So maybe that's what I was railing against still, is like, faith? Why are we talking about faith? You know? Well, yeah, the problem is my conventional notions of faith are actually outmoded. It needs to mature. It needed to mature. And um, of course I'm going like, to resist that limited notion. It's not serving. So there's an opportunity for us to, um, to go deeper. And uh, in the same book that where, he, where Chunk Rinpoche said you could have faith in not having faith, he talks about motivation and he talks about faith as a kind of conviction in one's practice. And he also talks about it as a sense of genuineness, of trusting the moment in a way. You're not faking anything and you are not trying to impress anybody, he says. And that what that does, if, we're allow, if we allow ourselves to do that, um, there's a bit of uh, almost like jumping off, you know. When I was a kid, I, uh, uh, I was afraid of deep water and afraid of swimming and afraid of water. And my mom uh, would bring me to swimming lessons every week, and it was the very thing I was petrified of. And uh, I actually need, I had so much fear for my first swimming lessons um, uh, series that I didn't make a lot of progress that there was a neighbor in our neighborhood who, uh, who was a swim instructor and had a pool in her backyard. Um, she was like the only person in the neighborhood to have a pool in her backyard, so everyone wanted to be friends with them. You know? <laughs> and she would babysit me once in a while, and she just said, you know, I feel like I could work with Andy. And so she very patiently over a summer worked with me to uh, get over my fear of water, of the water. And after I worked with, um, her name was Pam, I'll never forget her. Um, she, she was so patient. She was just like obviously really good with kids looking back. And um, it would just be during the day, during the summertime, not going to school. So I'm just, yeah, great, I'm going to go over to Pam. It's like it made it not an experience that I was so afraid of, you know, we used things like float, little floaty toys and stuff like that. And <laughs> she had the deep part and the, the bigger part, you know, she would get together with friends and play water polo in her, in her backyard pool too. And I remember just being there and doing that. And suddenly it was something that I could do. And then 
of course, you know, for me, like I, I kept going in my life and went to being on the swim team, you know, in junior high and loving it and, you know, doing lifeguard training and, and all of that. So that was a big part. And I remember there was a moment in my swimming lessons after I'd done all this training with that neighbor, that kind neighbor, and later on in my childhood where it was time to jump off the diving board and nothing seemed more terrifying than jumping into 10 feet of water that always looks scary from the other side of the pool when I open my eyes from the, from the shallow end. And I didn't want to do it and I said, no, I don't want to do it. And I got on the diving board and then I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And I just, I just ran back and there's a line of kids and of course they're all like, geez, come on, you know, we all want our turn. And the, the, the instructor actually just said, if you want to jump off here, I'll hold your hand and jump off with you. I said, okay. And I said, no, no, I won't. <laughs> and I walked back. And then at a certain point, something in me just said, do it. You don't know. It's really scary, but just do it. And it was like that. I don't know if anybody's ever like been on like a high place and you're like, what would happen if I just jump right now? It's like that impulse, you know? It was kind of like that. And so I held her hand and I just did it. I was afraid. I was still petrified and I just did it. And when, I came, when I'm reading about this, this notion of faith too, like we encounter all of our resistance and yet we still have the capacity to meet the moment. We can still enter the moment. We may be uncomfortable on the cushion. We may feel like we don't know what are in the depths of ourselves. What is in the depths? What's waiting for us? We do not know. And it's true, we don't. And sometimes there's a wisdom in that fear. The ocean feels like that to me whenever I go out in it, not in a boat but either by myself or on a surfboard or whatever I'm doing, which I don't get to do very often living here, but, and I haven't done in years, but I did for a lot, a lot at one point in my life, and it felt a lot like that, jumping board, you know, the diving board moment. And of course, I, when I jumped off, it wasn't anything like I thought it would be, and, I, and the body is, you know, wants to go up. And when you're learning how to swim for this whole time, of course, swimming in deep water isn't that different. It feels a little different. But I was able to swim to the edge, and I was just fine. And the kindness of people that are here, such as the Sangha, such as the teachings that we have to relate to that can help point the way, and such as the Buddha, which is also our teachers, we have people that are willing to hold our hand and also willing to let go of our hand at the right time. So at a certain point, the instructor that I dove in with, she couldn't hold my hand for me in the water. I had to swim myself. She had to let, I had to let go of her hand in order to actually swim to the side of the pool and get out. So I think that, that can be an expression of faith. And Trungpa talked about that, like one of the things, the outgrowth of faith is daring. And, and the definition he has of daring is whenever there is a challenge, you step beyond it. Daring bridges the pond of fear. You're afraid you might fall in, but with daring, you step over your fear. And in my experience, I would say you can also dive right into it or jump right into it. And you can let go. You can let go of the hand that's holding you through it and what you think you need without any, there's no guarantees. You don't know what that's going to be like, and you just do it. And that's what that entire practice period, from one perspective, really felt like to me. After the Tangari, or the five days, I had what I call a, uh, a meltdown when I realized that this wasn't a sashin. It wasn't a weekend retreat. It wasn't a seminar. <laughs> It's not a weekend seminar, you know, it's like it's uh that was my life for three months. And there was nowhere to go. And we weren't gonna be online and we weren't gonna leave that valley except to go on a hike or something, or sometimes we had to work on the road because the road was the road gets all messed up there all the time from mudslides and rock slides and you need help. But that was it, that was the closest. 
of getting out and I'm going to be stuck there with these people, only Zen people, <laughs> for three months. And I didn't know, what, the thing is, I didn't know what it was going to be like. And you know, at a certain point, maybe it would be okay. I met with the, um, after I had that meltdown, I think I just broke, I cried. And sitting for five days was easy compared to that. Now I had to deal with all the monastic forms and all those 65 people that I was with. And that seemed daunting. And then, um, you know, I could only call my girlfriend every once in a while. And I started to realize how much we have an emotional network that we rely on a lot. And our Sangha friends and the people that we trust. And I had to somehow have faith that I did all this preparation. Um, a good friend of mine uh, raised money, uh, helped me raise money on a GoFundMe. And this community put together funds for me to go. So it didn't feel like it was, it was necessarily just mine. It was the product of the efforts of a lot of people. And uh, who is I to just walk away from it? <laughs> so there was no escape. And um, as some of you may know, Pema Chodron has a great book called The Wisdom of No Escape. And so I just thought about that great book title and um, stuck with it. And it wasn't always easy. And I went through the meltdown and I met with the abbess um, there too. And she just said, uh, I described what the meltdown was to her that, uh, that sixth or seventh day of, of practice period. And she said, and I'm like, God, she's just going to think that I'm doing it all wrong or something. And she goes, that sounds like a great first week at Tassajara. <laughs> <laughs> and one, her name is Leslie, Leslie James, and she's a wonderful teacher. And, uh, I was felt very well supported by her and also the Tonto, Tonto there, who's a really great guy, and then also um, Norman and his wife Kathy, and made a lot of other friends. And Norman and Kathy's community, they also gave Dharma transmission to four female priests that were there. Who, and I noticed that each of those four four priests, those four priests, they um, they went out of their way to kind of befriend a lot of us and in a genuine way, not because they felt like they had to. It was just naturally occurring, and I felt like I had such a strong support network that developed, but I didn't know what that was going to be at the time, and so therefore the meltdown occurred. <laughs> and that was okay. That was part of the practice, and um, perhaps there's some daring to just even endure with that. Uh, another Trungpa Rinpoche teaching that I'll leave everyone with is that and also a poem that I wrote, I'll read, and then we'll speak a little bit together, is that uh, he has a phrase, he kind of has these very pithy slogans in his teaching. I spent a lot of time in that tradition while I first was studying Zen, so that's why I go back to Trungpa Rinpoche a lot. He says, um, confidence beyond hesitation, which also plays with our conventional notions of confidence. Beyond our hesitation, and even despite of our hesitation, despite of all of our resistance, like we can actually still just be with what is happening. And perhaps that is, um, perhaps that is enough. So I, I wanted to share more poetry, but I'll share a haiku that I wrote, two haikus that I wrote while there, because it was just fun. And I was inspired greatly by some of the tea ceremonies I've done with uh, Jerome Reese. <laughs> and we sometimes have written haikus after those ceremonies. <laughs> and it, um, it doesn't, you can't encapsulate an experience, but it relates to the experience. And it's just a fun, creative way of relating to it, I think, and uh, to exercise um, the creative muscle. Here, I'm looking for that page. where I have those haikus. One of them I believe I have memorized. I didn't want to do this. Okay, I'm going to stop flipping and looking for it. I'm going to count it out of my hand just because I want to make sure it's right. Fumbling with monastic forms. Ah. Yeah, okay. That's the seven one. That's in the middle. <laughs> Ancient purity, fumbling with monastic forms, laughing like a cloud. 
Then there was another one in the middle part of the seven, you know, 575 was planning an escape route home. <laughs> because that's part of the experience. <laughs> you basically fantasize about everything you can when you have that much time. And you basically wear that out, you know. Anything that's taking you away from the experience that you're already having, you start to see that you're, you've been playing that game for a very long time. So um, I'll leave it at that, and hopefully sharing some of my experiences are, uh, is in some way um, of use to people. And uh, thanks for listening, since listening was what I started with and started to value here. It's just listening to the path, and um, I really appreciate you all being here. and the opportunity to share and the opportunity to do something like this. And I encourage anyone who's ever pulled to do something like this, even if you think that, oh God, I could never do that. It's very likely that you could. So I'd like to encourage everyone to explore the path as they see fit. And even if they think it's beyond their capacity, you might surprise yourself. Thank you. I think we have a few minutes for discussion. It's about 12.25 and somebody usually you hear a clamoring bell up there, you know, it's like, hey, it's time for lunch, so we can we can have about ten minutes of discussion or something, I think. Does anybody have questions or comments or any ideas or anything? Yeah, Alex. Did you experience Zen? <laughs> what is Zen? <laughs> I experienced something that was not necessarily my ideas, my, my ideas going into it of what Zen is. And I think it's, it's just an open question about what is it? What is it? You know, I don't know. And, but the Zen forms aren't what I thought they were. I thought they were just these religious things. And before I know it, here I am wrapped up in all these robes to manage. And, uh, and work with, and we were bowing a lot and doing a lot more service forms there than we do here. And so I'm noticing the contrast, and sometimes it just felt like, my God, all right, let's just get back to sitting already. <laughs> Isn't that what we do in Soto Zen? <laughs> Enough ceremonies. And then after a while, um, I just noticed that if you just, if I would give myself to it, sometimes uh, I didn't know what was happening when we are bowing. And uh, even if I was so exhausted that I was falling asleep during one of the Durrani's that were chanting, I would notice myself going in and out of sleep right there on the spot during our half-hour ritual every morning of uh, all of our chants and bows. It became a very intimate practice. So, yeah. Um, Whatever Zen was for me before going in, it wasn't necess didn't necessarily survive coming out. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. I was curious because you were there for so long, and your first experience there was a lot of resistance by the end of your stay. Did you feel like a sense of you were in a flow? everything that was going on like you mentioned like it was stressful to try to time yourself to time yourself with the schedule needed mm -hmm. to use the bathroom and stuff like and just wondering if did that eventually just kind of cease from your thoughts that's felt like everything yeah. was okay and you used the bathroom when you could and your body wasn't panicked or anxious about it because i noticed like mm -hmm. difference when you put yourself in a really different and strange situation the mind and body is usually like, uh-oh. <laughs> like, did that eventually, you know, cease? Yeah, thank you. That's a wonderful question. And, and it's funny because when I first got out, I was talking about that more, about what that process was. And the longer I've been back, like, some things start to fade a little bit when they're fresh, you know, right away. And, um, but that's still there. You know, it still happened. I did. It, it got more comfortable. It's kind of like camping. You start to get a routine down or you're traveling and then you come back to routines and things like that, um, you kind of get, you take on something new and you find a way to work with it. 
and it felt impossible at first, like all these ways that I'm compromised. How do I uphold these forms and also take care of myself? It was a quandary. I had no idea. And then after a while, I'd say like the last month, it was just like none of it was a big deal. Like I could put my robes on quicker than I ever had <laughs> at the sound of the bell, and I noticed I was pushing it a little bit, but I, I actually made it a practice to always be there, um, like by the first roll down if I could. And then definitely before the second roll down, because there you can't go into the Zendo if you're there after the second roll down until somebody lets you in. And then you have to go in, and everybody knows you're late. <laughs> As somebody told me once recently, it's like, yeah, you kind of feel tardy, don't you? It's like, yeah, just something to be aware of. You don't beat yourself up. You just go, oh, well, you know. And it happens sometimes, but it was the exception. And I made it like, I made it like my job to be there you know, and took it seriously. Like, I'm a professional monastic right now, and this is my job. <laughs> and yeah, it was okay. We're also hand washing our clothes and doing all these other things because they don't have a washer and dryer there too, and hanging them up and finding ways. How do you take care of all of that? It's like, it became okay. Like, um, I just did it. And the resistance, I, I'm still critical of, hier of rigid hierarchies and religious hierarchies. I'm still critical of some of the things that eke out in a way that we act out on each other sometimes. But I also see that there was an efficiency there too. And that there was a way that we, we responded to each other within that whole system that was uh, quite amazing, you know, regardless of the problems. And I think even, you know, I think, uh, what was it? People know that democracy isn't perfect, but it's like the best we have, you know, so far. <laughs> a lot of people will say that when they talk about democracy. It's not perfect. So it felt like that too. It's like, okay, it's not perfect and I'm still critical and the critical faculties are operating, and I'm noticing things that actually bother me. But maybe that's all okay. It's just part of the experience. Mm -hmm. So maybe a, maybe a little equanimity started to happen. And then also being used to being in that environment, which was not an easy environment to be in with the cold and you know managing all these things, and especially with the precise time, because if you weren't at a place where you should be, um, <laughs> you got to knock on your door. There's somebody's job in the Zendo to go find you <laughs> and say, hey, how are you? Are you okay? <laughs> you know? And if you're sick, you just sign out and you say, I'm sick. You know? And it's like, fine, people leave you alone, you're sick. And uh, we're all adults here. You know? But um, if they don't know where you are, you get, I got a knock once because I forgot to sign out um, because you get the first morning session off if you're the fire watch job, making sure that every, all the lights are turned off at night. And, you know, the stove isn't on and things like that. It's somebody's job to do that, to make sure that things are okay in that valley. And, uh, and I forgot to sign out, so that person's job, they're called the Tankin, walked up to my door and I hear the... And I open the door, you okay? Oh yeah, I forgot to sign out. <laughs> so everything is that precise, and even that's okay. You know, that's not necessarily threatening after a while. Thanks for your question. Yeah. Yeah, Mark. Thank you so much, Andy. This is really wonderful to share your experience. And I was wondering, at the end of all of this, do you feel that pain and suffering, which is kind of a part of the routine, do you think that that's like an inescapable requirement for growth or for uh, a experience of enlightenment? Well, it's the first noble truth, right? You know, I think that, I don't think we can escape it at all. I think it's just a part of our experience. And I think, you know, the difference is like, uh, we have the opportunity to, to really be with it. It may not be what we think it is. You know, we have the opportunity to just dive in and take a chance and sit down and, get, and have the opportunity to maybe perhaps have a different relationship without any, without any guarantees. We don't know what's going to happen, you know. And um, one of the things that Norman said that I really like in one of his talks is that he said, um, he said, suffering is good for bodhisattvas. I want to suffer, you know, <laughs> which was... <laughs> Which is a really interesting stance. And I'm just like, sometimes he has that kind of poetic way of speaking where it's just like, you know, you're at a good poetry reading and you're like, whoa, never thought of that before. You know, neat, neat combination of words, you know, and the way he said it. 
He's like, I want to suffer, you know. And I'm like, well, that's an interesting you know, position and kind of attitude to take on. He's like, here it is. Here's the, here's the ingredients of my life. And it's not always comfortable. And actually really fully entering things and entering everything is not necessarily guaranteeing comfort. So we're looking at what is beyond our preferences of like and dislike and comfort. You know, can we really be with what's happening? And I think that as an opportunity with Buddhists, we have an opportunity because we're, we're not shying away from, supposedly, you know, idealistically anyway, this whole problem of birth and death, this whole issue of birth and death and suffering. We lean into it instead of running away. And our whole culture is training us constantly to not look at it. Seek something pleasant, you know. And uh, this is not doing that. This is being with whatever is there. And even if it's uncomfortable, and there's a way sometimes I, want, I will say that there were times on the cushion while I was there where even if my knees hurt, it was a gift. It was fine. I could just receive it. Rather than clenching up and going, oh, pain. You know, we tend to clench up and then that adds even more, you know, rather than just feeling the basic sensation or the, if we're feeling negativity, there's basic negativity without our added stories. It's just an energy. It's just an experience. So we get into the essence of our experience. And I think we have an opportunity to crack that a little bit, crack our shells, crack our defenses, crack our usual responses and our knee-jerk reactions. So yeah, I think that's, it's an amazing opportunity that we have. And I think we all, sometimes we take those opportunities for granted in this practice. Sashin is an opportunity for that. That person at work that really pisses you off, an opportunity for that. <laughs> As we say, practice opportunity. There's always somebody. I, was, I remember I was talking to somebody there, and they were just like, well, how are you getting along with people, you know, at, uh, at, at, uh, at Tassahara? And I'm like, great, actually. There, there are two people that really kind of get under my skin. They're like, that's it? <laughs> you're lucky <laughs> and I was like yeah but those people were an opportunity for me you know it was it wasn't easy and but I, I just really uh, I wanted to lean in and actually uh, work with them too you know um, provide an opportunity for something unexpected to happen there even if it looked like it was it wasn't a very uh, welcoming circumstance just actually just maybe step in and see what happens and take a risk Maybe because there's faith that there's an opportunity for Buddha nature to manifest or express. Maybe. Thanks, Mark. I had no idea what I was going to say when you asked that. <laughs> Did anybody hear that lunch bell? Anybody else hungry? <laughs> Any other burning questions? Other burning questions. Yeah. yeah. Um, going back to faith, So, uh, for example, just take a contrast in a situation that one has put a huge amount of effort and time to. Mm. You know, so there's the faith in holding the course, no matter you know if, uh, if whatever circumstance you're in is unpleasant, is uh, futile, mm. as versus taking the the leap of faith and completely changing directions and jumping off the diving board. Um, what is your what are your thoughts on that conundrum? That is wonderful because actually I started to look at great faith, great doubt, and great determination in preparation for this too, which is spoken of a lot in Zen. And Kohen Yamada talked about faith as being um, like our entire body and mind are a single mass of inquiry. It's like a great tree with strong roots not moved by the gale. You know, our spiritual energy solidified into an immovable mass of questioning. You know, and that's a little different. That's what I thought of when you were saying what you're saying. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's something. That isn't necessarily. Subject to. The ups and downs. The changeability, the, the kind of um, all the permutations and. This extreme and that extreme. But it is something to rest in. Mm -hmm. Outside of the decision. 
despite this, yeah, like it's like there's one teacher for me that just said, um, he said, don't make a decision unless you have to. And I've been contemplating that for about 10 years. And I think when I asked him what that meant, and he just, I think he, he kind of snarkily said, think about it for 10 years, you know? <laughs> That's one reason why I love that teacher. A total smart ass and kind of takes one to know on for me. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, I feel like that's a really good conversation and inquiry, and I don't think that I have a, um, that that's what I said is, like, exhausts what you're asking. I think it's a wonderful question. I would love to hold that for a while. And thank you for bringing it up. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge. And this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jikoji, please visit us on the web at jikoji.org.